And our scripture reading this morning comes from 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives, when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. This is God's word. It is true and is given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Sandy. Well, it is great to be worshiping with you all. Again, like everyone said, this is a wonderful week to be visiting. If you're new here, baptisms and Palm Sunday and a super non-controversial passage for our sermon. <laughs> We're just going to talk about, you know, gender relationships and wives submitting to their husbands and all those kinds of uh, uh, passive things that are not a big deal at all in this day and age. Uh, I think a lot of, a lot of husbands uh, like myself have a a clear memory of, of how verses like this have come up in different uh, moments of our discussion as a married couple, like several reasonable times where I've been reminding Kelly uh, that uh, the Bible says she needs to submit to me, and that's just something that the Bible says is true, and that goes super well, right? No, not really. So that's, I've, I've made that mistake twice in our marriage, and I know it was only twice because both times it was scarring enough that it, it, it impacted our marriage in a very uh, a profound kind of way. Uh, the, the seriousness of this, though, is that the topic we have this morning is a very complex one. It, it's one that there is a lot of emotion behind. It's one that there's a lot of, of cultural pressure behind. It, it's one where there's a lot of, of pain uh, behind it uh, in, in all of our lives in different pe- ways. That uh, When we get to questions of, of gender and sexuality and the kinds of things that make us men and women in God's sight, it's always something that, that is, uh, uh, has the potential to hit a nerve uh, in our souls in a way that other issues don't. And, and so for, for many of you here where this uh, subject is not something to, to laugh at or, or to joke about. Uh, I want to say that like, I, I probably will not ever understand the depth of, of some of the things that are, you're feeling in this moment as we talk about this, this subject. But what I do want to know is to say that, that uh, when we come to God's Word, no matter what culture says about a topic, no matter what pressures come on us externally, saying that something is uh, you know, a, a third rail, it's something that you shouldn't touch, it, it's, it's, we got to stay away from it if we want to keep people happy. Um, ultimately, if this is God's Word, we can come to it with the confidence of knowing that what is best for us will be found in these pages. Uh, um, when I, I was reading this passage, getting ready to preach the sermon this weekend, so I read it to our, our 15-year-old daughter, Reagan, and her response was, Dad, there's no way you can preach that sermon. And I was like, <laughs> let me talk to the elders and see what we can do if we move on from it. But ultimately, again, like, again, society says that one thing about this, and the Bible says something very different. And, and so when we come to the two voices that we hear in our ears, what culture is telling us and what scripture is telling us, we have to ask ourselves, who is it that actually loves us more? Like, who is it that actually has what's best for us in mind? Is it society? Is it culture? Or is it Jesus and what he has shown us through his word? So, so what we're going to do is we're going we're to look at uh, this passage today, um, recognizing that, that uh, some, some teachings in the Bible come naturally to our society. Like, if you talk about uh, we are made in the image of God and every man, woman, and child has dignity and value, like, th- that plays really well today. If you, if you remind people that in First John, uh, the Bible says that God is love, like that, that will play very well today. If you talk about how Jesus is gentle and kind, those things play very well today. This, this subject does not play well today, but we do know that God loves us, and we're going to come to his word and see what he has for us. So with all that being said, all those caveats, uh, they're, they're, I'm, not, I'm not trying to make caveats or, or explain away God's word, but what I, what I do want to say is I, I do feel a sense of weightiness with this topic uh, of, of like, I, if I misspeak today, I have the potential to hurt a lot of you in a lot of really un, unfortunate ways. And so I want to pray for myself to speak uh, with the words that God has for us, and I'm going to pray for us to be receptive to the words that God has for us today. So will you join me in prayer as we study God's word? 
Heavenly Father, we are grateful that, uh, that your Bible speaks to the issues of real life. Uh, it doesn't leave those things to blogs or news cycles or whatever um, our society tells us or what social media pushes. But instead, we can come to your word and be reminded that uh, this is where life can be found. And so I pray that as we open these pages, as we talk about what it means to be followers of you as, as men and women uniquely created in your image to follow you and honor you with our lives, I pray that you would help me to speak uh, your word clearly and truthfully, that I wouldn't try to, to over-nuance things or to under-explain things. I wouldn't misspeak in any unfortunate ways. And I pray for all of our hearts that we would receive what you have for us today. We wouldn't leave with an agenda other than knowing you and loving you more. And we're grateful that your word allows us to do that. And it's the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to continue our study in First Peter. So if you don't have a Bible, there's a Bible on the table. I definitely want to encourage you to have a, the scripture open in front of you this morning so we see that this is what's coming from God's word, not from my own opinions. On the table Bibles, it's page 1015 that we'll be jumping in. But uh, this is just another reminder of when, when we come to God's word, we, we approach it here at Missio Day on verse-by-verse study of whole books of the Bible for exact reasons like this. Because if I was left to pick topics, I might not ever pick to preach on this. But God is the one who sets the agenda. He's the one who sets the topics, and so we want to come to him in humility and hear what he says. And so we're here starting chapter 3 of 1 Peter, and the first two chapters have already been so incredible and so perfectly timed for our cultural moment to speak the things that we need to hear. So, so he talks off, Peter begins by saying that this letter is addressed to the elect exiles. He's saying that, that you are chosen and loved by God, you are elect, you are beloved by God, but also that you are an exile, that if you are a follower of Christ, this world is not your home, you're living as a sojourner, you are homeless and if you try to make this world your home you will end up not being able to fit in and it's going to be painful for you so we are the chosen and homeless people of God and then what Peter does is he's trying to situate us on the timeline of history so all throughout chapter one he points back to the resurrection of Jesus and saying hey if Jesus defeated sin and death if he really rose again then that changes everything and then he also tries to position our gaze towards the future and saying hey if Jesus is coming again if at the end of the time he will return and make this this broken world complete completely new and, and the inheritance that God has saved for us will finally be revealed to us. If that's where we're going and the resurrection is where we came from, then the place we find ourselves now, we can have hope. We have biblical hope that says, I am confident that the future is going to turn out exactly as God planned because he already demonstrated his power in the past when he rose Jesus from the dead. And so then what Peter does throughout the rest of the first two chapters is he keeps going back to this reminder of who we are in Christ. He, he, it's these, these indicative statements where he says, you are uh, a royal priesthood. You are a chosen nation. You are a people of God's special possession that he has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. All these amazing things is nothing that we have done to earn that. It's all the things that God has done on our behalf through the grace of Jesus Christ. And so if that is who we are in Christ, then we get to these commands, these principles that say, if you are a new creation in Christ, how do you live as an elect exile in Babylon, in, in a world that is bent and broken and, and, and is, uh, uh, not honoring God and how he has called us to live? If that's the case, who we are in Christ changes how we live for Christ. It's always the indicative that precedes it's the imperative. It's, it's who, what God has done that changes how we respond. It's, it's never us earning God's love. It's always us responding to what God has done for us out of his love. And so then what we see is that as we started chapter 2, these uh, really important verses, chapter 2, verses 11 and 12, where Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So again, he makes us, sets our gaze looking forward towards the day of visitation, towards Jesus' return, his second coming. And he's saying, if you are an elect exile, if you're a sojourner, if you're homeless, live in such an honorable way that even though the world is going to speak against us, even though when the world hears our position on sexuality and gender, on marriage relationships, all those things, and we're maligned, we can have confidence that if we continue to live honorably among the people who don't love Jesus, eventually they will see our good deeds and God will get glory for that. And so, so those two verses are the heading for the rest of the book. And so we talked about how living honorably changes how we relate to the government. Last week, Aaron talked about how living honorably changes how you relate to your vocation and towards your employer. And this morning, we're going to talk about how living honorably changes how you relate to your spouse. So I'm going to read uh, verses 1 through 6 again, just 
just to, re- to give us this recap and say, here's the big picture of what God has to say to wives as what it means to live honorably. And so keep, it, keep this in mind. This is all under the heading of living a good life among, amidst a broken world that doesn't honor Jesus. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart and the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves, by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. And again, it's harder to imagine a more offensive way to phrase this in our day and age, right? Like if Peter sat down and said, hey, here's what I'm thinking about sharing with people. You'd be like, I would probably delete that draft of your email. I'd probably rewrite it, rethink some things, try to soften some edges, round those corners a little bit, because that's just too abrasive in this day and age. And, And so what we need to remember is when we come to a reading like this that's controversial, that doesn't fit our society, the things that are gonna jump off the page first time through, the things that immediately stand out to us are always going to be the things that are countercultural. Okay, so, so when, you, when you hear the word, wives, be subject to your husbands, or, or when it says, uh, don't, don't let your adorning be external, or when it says, uh, uh, Sarah called her husband Lord. Uh, again, I recommend not recommending that for your uh, dialogue with your spouse. That's not a title you should be pushing as a husband. But again, all of those things are what stand out. And we need to remember that the, the deeper understanding of God's word is always what we're, we're pushing for. And so as a 21st century American in our cultural context, I can't just read this and assume that whatever the first thing that is that comes to my mind, that that's also probably the same thing Peter meant when he wrote this. Okay, so, so having good resources, I, I highly recommend the ESV Study Bible. Uh, you can find it online or buy it in print version, but something like that that you can go and say, what is the context of this passage? What is, what is Peter trying to say here is super helpful. And so, so with that, again, I don't want to round the edges that God is, is trying to leave sharp, but I do want to point out some things that do nuance what's being said here. So first of all, it says, wives be subject to your own husbands. This is not a blanket statement saying all women are subject to all men. This is talking about a marriage-specific relationship. The, the wives submitting to your husband is only in the context of that covenant relationship of marriage. Also, I want to point out that this is the third topic where he's using this concept of submitting. He's already said that as citizens, we are to all submit to our government. Okay, last week he said that, that as uh, slaves or bond servants or, or as an employer or employee, you're called to submit to the authority over you. So we are all, as followers of Christ, called to submit to the authority structure that exists around us. You're not, wives, you are not alone in being told to submit. Even in Ephesians chapter 5, when Paul says something very similar, He precedes the verse that says, wives submit to your husbands by saying that as followers of Christ in the church, we are all to submit to one another. We should submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what Ephesians 5.21 says. Okay, another thing to keep in mind with this is we read this and we hear, boy, Peter is really anti-women. Okay, but in the first century, when the, the pagans encountered the church of Jesus, they walked away repulsed saying, oh my gosh, that is too pro-women for me. Okay, in the first century, the church was maligned. We have quotes from Roman philosophers making fun of Christians saying that the church is only a place for women because it's only women who go to church. Okay, so, so in the first century, if you, uh, being, uh, a girl being born to you was not valuable for your family. So there's this horrific practice called a female infanticide where if you had a little baby girl, you would expose her to the elements so she could die because you didn't want to take care of her because a little girl wasn't important. Okay, and that practice was so widespread in the first century that by the time this was written, the Roman Empire was population was two-thirds male and one-third female. That's how often they had murdered their little girls in this culture. But when the message of Jesus and the grace of Jesus came and women saw the dignity and the value they were shown in God's church, those proportions were exactly flipped in the New Testament church. The New Testament church was two-thirds female and one-third male because so many of these women who were completely abused in society saw the message of Jesus as a place of hope and freedom and life, and they came to it. So so if we're saying that the church is too anti 
woman here in the 21st century, you have to deal honestly with the fact that in the first century, it was seen as two pro-women, and because of that, it was maligned by society. And so, so things like uh, the fact that women had honored roles of ministry in the church uh, because they condemned infanticide, uh, because in marriage they promoted monogamy instead of encouraging concubines and temple prostitution, all of these things were horrible institutions that oppressed and abused women. But in the church, in Jesus' new identity of his people, women found dignity and value and honor. So that needs to be part of the cultural context as we're reading these verses. But even those nuances being said, right, like even understanding that context, this still has some sharp edges. Okay, there is nowhere in the New Testament that husbands are told to submit to their wives, but wives are told to submit to their husbands. In the same way, we have to deal with the fact that in the uh, church, in the, the history of the church, this verse and verses like it have been twisted in very evil ways by evil men to abuse and harm women. There's a lot of abusive marriages where verses like this have been taken out of the context of what they were used for and used to inflict great danger and harm on women. We have to deal honestly with that fact. And so, so when, we, when we talk about it again, we're, we're speaking, we're, you're never in a cultural vacuum. Anytime you read the Bible, you are coming from a context of which you find yourself. So, so we cannot read this passage and pretend that we're not post uh, the Me Too movement or the church to movement, or this whole like the topic of like gender fluidity, or the idea of like toxic masculinity being a thing that people are processing, or the fact that, that in response to all of those, there's now this, this fear of, of a church being woke, and so going liberal, and so there's this hyper reaction or counter reaction to all those movements. There is a, there's a, a tumultuous society around us, both within the church and outside of the church, and we have to, to say that when we come to this, we all have those perspectives that we're bringing to this lens. And so what I want to do is, as we start to dive into each of these words and, and study this, this passage in depth, I want us to pull back and say, what is it that we have been saying for 10 years on a Sunday morning when we stand to read God's word out of respect? We say, this is God's word. It is true, and it is given out of his love. Okay, so if this is God's word, then every word in here reflects the goodness of the character of the God who wrote it. Okay, if, if this is true, then it means that we will find thriving and the best identity that we can have when we align ourselves with the truth of God's word, not the truth of society. And if it's given out of his love, that means that even if sometimes the Bible says things we don't want to hear, it's going to say the things that we need to hear. Okay, our thriving we'll find in these passages. And so what I want us to do today is say, let's stare at this passage so intently Let's study it so deeply that we refuse to leave until we have seen the goodness of God in this passage. What if instead of saying, boy, that's controversial, and he made some really awkward jokes to start the sermon, what if instead of that we stare at the goodness of God in this passage and say, I do think that this is God's word. I know that it is true, and I know that it's given out of his love, and so we can find our thriving in that. So. That's my prayer as we go this morning. So let's look again at verses 1 and 2. What we see is verses 1 and 2, verses 2 and 3, and then verse, or 3 and 4, and then verses 5 and 6. Kind of those three different triads point to three different aspects of what Peter is saying wives should be doing. So the first one we see is verses 1 and 2, where Peter is saying that wives should embody missional submission. This is about missional submission. So verses 1 and 2. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands, so that even if some of do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. And so he's saying, wives, be subject or submit to your husbands. And this is something, again, Ephesians 5 is a very important parallel passage where the apostle Paul writes something very similar to what Peter is doing. They each have different agendas, but they point the same idea, that when God created men and women, he created men and women different, even though they have equal dignity and value in his sight. So this, this theological position that the Bible teaches here is called complementarianism. That's what we believe as a church. And what, what we mean by that is God made men and women equal in dignity and value, period. There, there is no nuance needed to that. In God's sight, men and women are equal. But God also gave us different roles and functions. So men and women are equal in dignity and value, but distinct in role and function. The husbands and wives each take different roles in their marriage. And so what, what Paul does in Ephesians 5 is say that the difference of those roles in marriage are supposed to be a sermon to the world. 
Okay, the way that hu- uh, husbands love their wives sacrificially models the way that Jesus loves his church sacrificially and selfishly. The way that hus- uh, wives respect and honor and submit to their husbands models the way that the church humbly submits and respects and honors Jesus. So your marriage, this relationship, is supposed to be a submission thing, a submission thing for the sake of preaching the gospel. Okay? Jesus does not submit to us and so if hus- uh, as his church. And so a husband honoring Jesus by serving his wife is modeling what Jesus does. Okay, when, when wives submit to their husbands, they're modeling the church's response to Jesus and who he is. And so then from there, we have to say, we're all called to submit in all these different ways. And submission is not a bad thing. Okay, God created authority. And when we live in line with the authority structures that he's created, that is actually what is best and for our thriving. And the reason I know submission is not a bad thing is because Jesus did it himself. In 1 Corinthians 11, it says that Jesus, as the Son of God, submits to God the Father. And so if Jesus models a posture of submission to God the Father, then there can't be something inherently bad or wrong with being submissive in general. And so with that, uh, submission is not being a doormat. It's not an excuse for abuse. uh, And it's not weakness. Okay, submission does not mean weakness. Listen to this quote from Jen Wilkins. She's a Bible teacher that's part of our Acts 29 network. She says this, Submission is willingly placing yourself under someone else's leadership. It is not subjugation, nor is it weakness. Biblical submission is about meekness or strength under control, shown clearly to us in the example of Christ. Okay, submission is not subjugation, it is strength under control. It's meekness, it's willingly placing yourself under someone else's leadership. So when you talk about our role of submitting to the government, does that mean that as citizens we're weak? No, it means that we're placing ourselves under the leadership of the government that God has called us to submit to. Or or your employer, does that mean that your employer is, is stronger than you are and that you're weak? No, it means you're willingly placing yourself under the leadership of your employer. And the amazing thing with this that the scholars have pointed out is Many Roman philosophers wrote about wives submitting to their husbands. Okay, that was a very popular idea in that day and age. No Roman philosophers wrote to wives about wives submitting to their husbands. Peter is doing something completely countercultural and innovative, and no one had ever done before this. He is writing to wives specifically, giving them dignity and honor, and saying that you are actually the one that is in control of your response. And okay, so go back to my, my story in the beginning with the, the two horrific times that I, I told Kelly the Bible said she needs to submit to me. The reason that is bad is because the Bible doesn't address that to me. That addresses that to her. The Bible, if you are a husband, Scripture nowhere says to you, husbands, ensure that your wives submit to you. Okay, that is an important nuance to remember with that. Okay, like when you read the Scripture, it is not our job as husbands to ensure our wives submit. Wives, it is your job as an act of worship to respond to what God has shown you in his word. And so that, that is something that, uh, again, this, this is missed in our day and age where we just assume that people are writing to both men and women. But in the Roman world, it was only men writing to men. The fact that Peter honors women by speaking to them directly is an amazing thing here. But also we want to see that what is the purpose? Why, why does Peter say wives need to submit? There's that important phrase, so that. It says, so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word when they see your respectful and pure conduct. He's saying that the reason you submit as a wife in this context is a missional submission to their husband. And so, so what the expectation was in the first century is that if the husband had a set of gods in his pantheon as a pagan that he would worship, the expectation was that the wife would worship the exact same gods as her husband. And so if you look at, the, the, again, the data, if two-thirds of the early church was women, that means there's a whole bunch of women who are worshiping gods that are different than the gods of their husbands. So this is a, a hugely controversial, a hugely uh, um, uh, a black mark uh, in society's eyes on the church, the fact that wives are not honoring their husband's God. And so what, what Peter is doing is saying, don't give them any excuse to malign the name of Jesus. So in your marital conduct, submit to them. Be a wife that is honorable and dignifies her husband so that when your your pagan husband who doesn't know Jesus sees you worshiping Jesus, he can see the beauty of the gospel because of your behavior. Okay, and so, so if, if you are here today and you're, you, are, you are a follower of Christ and your husband is not, this, this verse is such a kindness from God. 
that, that he loves you enough to show you this context and say, here's how your marriage should be conducted. Even though you're not uh, both worshiping the same God, if you're in covenant together, this is how you conduct yourself so that your marriage will point your non-Christian husband to the glory of Jesus. And the application for anyone who is married, even if both spouses are Christians, is what is the motivation behind all of your behavior as a, as a Christian who is married? And it should be this exact thing, that because you are married to your spouse, they become more like Jesus than if they weren't married to you in the first place. Okay, so think, think in your relationships. Every relationship is driven by something. There, there is some gas in the engine of every relationship that says the reason I'm engaging this relationship is so that something will happen. And so for many of us, we engage relationships so that we will be comfortable or so that we will get affirmation or so that we will fit the expectations of our family of origin. All those kinds of things go into every relationship dynamic. And what Peter is saying here is that the most important thing to drive your relationship, the most important fuel in the tank of your marriage or friendships or anything is that that relationship will help people see a better picture of who Jesus is. Like he said, you live such a good life among the pagans that they could see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what we see here, the goodness of God we see reflected is that the church has always been able to or willing to endure difficult situations so that the people around us will see the glory of God. Okay, P, uh, Paul says this in his last letter in 2 Timothy 2, uh, months before he was executed most likely, he says, therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Again, like our, we are willing to endure everything so that those around us will see the glory of Jesus and come to know him as their savior. That's what that first section is, missional submission. The next two verses, verses three and four, deal with what authentic beauty is. And so verses, let's read those again. Verse three, it says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair or the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. And, and this is, again, another example of why we need to not just assume that our first reading is all that we need to. Okay, like, like this verse is definitely worth some deeper study to make sure we're applying it correctly. Because what it sounds like on a first application is, hey, ladies, uh, make sure you don't ever do your hair, don't wear jewelry, and it'd be better if you are seen but not heard. Okay, like make sure you keep your mouth shut. That's not what he's saying. Okay, and so let's take, for example, the, the, the don't let your clo the clothing you wear be uh, um, uh, the thing that draws attention to yourself. E each of these commands is not just a blanket statement. Okay, some Christians have taken this verse and said, okay, women can't wear jewelry, you can't braid your hair, and you can't wear anything nice. But what he actually says is don't let your adorning be the clothing you wear. So if you're going to take a rigid application, it would, he would be pushing a nudist colony on the church, and that's obviously not what he's doing. What, what Peter is doing is saying when you go to church, if you are leaving your non-Christian husband behind and you're going to the assembly of believers, don't make it look like you're headed to something controversial. Don't make it look like you're trying to draw attention to yourself. Don't make it look like you might be heading to an affair, not to a, a, a worship gathering of God's people. And, and the reason this is important is because at this exact time, uh, the Roman Empire, the Roman Senate, had outlawed two different religions, the worship of the god Bacchus and the worship of the uh, Egyptian god Isis, or goddess Isis, because both of those cults attracted predominantly women, and they had these uh, sexual escapades as part of their worship gatherings. And so what Peter is doing is saying, may your appearance as you leave to go to your church gathering not be something that causes your husband to be concerned about what you're up to, but rather to be something that shows that your beauty doesn't come from your external appearance, but it comes from your heart that is submitted to Jesus. And so, so with this, again, how do we see the goodness of God in this, in this thing? Recognizing that what he's talking about here is a posture of a heart, not a personality type. There are a lot of women who have uh, uh, more extroverted personalities, who are more outgoing and social, who read this and they're like, wait, I have to have a, a gentle and quiet spirit? Like, unless I'm quiet, it means God doesn't really love me? And, I, and that's been misapplied in some really unhelpful ways. But what he's doing is saying, like, quiet is not the opposite of loud. Quiet is the opposite of strife here. He's saying, make sure that your home is filled with peace. That you're not causing, like whenever you get in a fight, it always gets louder. No one whisper fights, right? We yell when we fight. He's saying make sure that you have that kind of heart posture. And then he's also saying uh, a, a gentle and quiet spirit. And that word gentle is so important for understanding what he's talking about. That, that word only occurs three times in the entire New Testament. And two of them are referring to Jesus himself. 
having the, not, not the personality of someone who's introverted, having the posture of Jesus, like we see in Matthew 11, who is gentle and lowly of heart, whose yoke is easy and his burden is light. What he's saying, he's not saying if you are extroverted, God doesn't love you. He's saying that your heart posture should be modeling after Jesus, who is gentle and lowly of heart. And then also I love the way that he dignifies women with this standard of beauty, the imperishable beauty of an internal spirit. Okay, every society has something that it it holds up as the standard of this is what beauty looks like. Okay, but here's the interesting thing about societies is the standard of beauty changes over time. Go look at a Renaissance painting and then go watch a movie made in Hollywood. Like those are very different standards of beauty and it has changed over time. But what, what Peter's doing here is saying, because every society has a standard of beauty, why not have your standard of beauty come from the God himself who is eternal? Okay, who God who looks on the inner uh, parts of our heart, not our external appearance. Because regardless of society's standard of beauty, the one thing that everything has in common is that it diminishes over time. It's saying that the longer you live at this whole thing, trying to make yourself appear attractive, the more it is going to expire as time goes on. And what Peter's saying is that stuff is fleeting, it is vanity, it is worthless. The standard of beauty comes from the character internally that God says matters. And, and so this, is, this has to be one of the most pro, I mean, it seems offensive at first, right? It's, it's Peter, some first century dude, describing what should be attractive, right? That, that seems very wrong. But what he's doing, this is the most pro-woman verse in the scripture because he's saying, if you are a woman, you are not an object, you are an image bearer. Your standard of beauty doesn't come from someone's fake uh, airbrushed surgery, uh, CGI, all those things that say this is what beauty is. Your standard of beauty comes from the eternal God who loved you enough to make you in his image to reflect his glory. That's the idea of authentic beauty. The last section we see here for husbands or for wives specifically is verses five and six. And what he's going to do is remind women of their communal calling. Okay, so we've had uh, missional submission, authentic beauty. This is now a communal or corporate calling that women have. Verses five and six. It says, for this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Okay, so um, this is the most bizarre example to pick that I could imagine. Right, if you read through the Old Testament, would you ever look at Abraham and Sarah's marriage and be like, now there's a marriage that we should really model ourselves after. Remember those two times where he pushed his wife into someone else's arms so that he would be safe? Like there's two different kings. He said, uh, she's my sister. Uh, I don't, want, don't, don't hurt me. Don't take her from me because you're worried about her being attractive and trying to kill me to get to my wife. Like Abraham modeled the most like horrific cowardly act that you could imagine. And, and like, I mean, think about that. Your husband, who is, is sworn to protect you and to give his life serving you, is pushing you into someone else's arms so that he will be safe. I mean, like, that, that's, a, that's a terrible thing. Like, imagine how frightening and terrifying that would be for Sarah. But what Peter's doing here is saying that Sarah is an example of someone who, even though she experienced horrific and terrifying things, her hope was in God. And because her hope was in God, that's how she was able to endure those things. And so what Peter's doing is saying, uh, if you are a first century wife who has a pagan husband who is upset that you've become a Christian, you're going to be put in some difficult situations. But no matter how difficult those situations turn into, remember the women of God who have come before you. And look at their example and say, if they hoped in God and God was faithful to them, then I can put my hope in God and God will be faithful to me. I'm sure you noticed that we uh, did not have Adam do the scripture reading this morning. We asked Sandy to do the scripture reading. And that was, that was very intentional. Uh, it was a very good idea, but it was not my idea. Actually, that came from Reagan, our daughter. As I was reading this, as a 15-year-old, she's thinking, boy, dad, as a dude, you're going to be saying all this, and this is not going to go well. I think you need to have a godly woman in the church uh, read this, this passage instead. And I think that's such a great idea. Because what I want, all, what I want my daughter to hear when she comes to stuff like this and knows that it's difficult, I, she needs the example of older godly women in the church who have been living this out throughout the course of their marriage and the course of their life and have found God to be faithful time and time again. Because I do know she has the voices of society that are screaming in her ears saying, if you listen to what the Bible says, you're going to be abused, you're going to be a doormat, you're going to be walked on. And I need other godly women that have lived this verse out 
telling her even louder than society does, no, this is God's word. It's true, and it's given out of his love. Okay, that's the thing why this verse matters. Is, is Paul, Peter is going back to these women and saying, even though it's going to feel lonely at times, if you, if you are serving God, it is always, there's going to be moments where it feels like you're the only one doing what God is telling you to do. But he's trying to say, broaden your gaze. Look throughout the course of history. Look to the examples of uh, godly women who've come before you and see that you're not alone in this, that there are other uh, women who are doing this as well. So those three things, uh, missional submission, authentic beauty, and then communal calling. That, those kind of wrap up what it is, what it means to be a, a wife who honors God in marriage. And then he doesn't end there, right? He, he, he turns to husbands as well because there, it, it is never a one-way street in any relationship. And so, uh, men, let's look at verse 7. And in this, I think it's, it's one of the shorter verses that we're going to talk about as far as marriage goes. Like when Paul talks about it, he speaks mostly to men and a little bit to women. Peter does the opposite. He speaks mostly to women and a little bit to men. But I think this verse gets at the heart of what it means to be a godly husband faster than anywhere else we can go. So look at verse 7. He says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers will not be hindered. Again, that, that, this, this is such an important thing. And Peter shows us four things here. A husband's assignment, a husband's posture, a husband's reward, and then a husband's warning. So let's go with a husband's assignment first. He says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Uh, he says, live with your, your wives according to knowledge. Uh, live with your wives in a way that you have considerately and uh, personally un- grown to understand who she is, how she gives and receives love, what it means for her to be cared for. Okay, every wife is as unique as God's many varied creation of the image bearers around us. And so not every wife is going to need the same thing, but different nuances of, of different past experiences or personality types of weaknesses and strengths and uh, victories and, and losses, all those things together make us up into the people that, that are unique in God's image. He's saying that as a husband, the most important thing you can do with your life, your mission, the rest of your days, till death do us part, is to be a student of your wife, to, to, to study her so deeply and intimately that you know exactly how she most needs to be cared for in every moment. Okay, like there's this question that our counselor has been asking me at different times, uh, as Kelly and I have seen counseling over the last few years, is uh, what does Kelly need right now? And I think that's such an important question. Not, not what does Kelly want, uh, what does Kelly need right now? And, and the, the, the degree to which I'm able to answer that question shows the degree to which we have had a healthy marriage leading up to that point. Like, like man, how well can you answer the question, what does your wife need from you right now? And that's going to change over time. We have to continue to be students. And that's why you have to be curious. You have to have this posture. Remember when you were dating, you'd have like 60 questions you would ask and just trying to get to know one another. And then you get married and you're like, well, I'm glad that's over with. Now we can go back to watching the game or something like that. Again, that posture of dating your wife, of saying, I'm going to continually be curious. I'm going to ask good questions. I'm going to, I'm going to be a student of my wife and study her so I can know how to love and serve her better. That's what Peter's saying here. He says, Live in, a, in a, an understanding way. That's our assignment. Our posture is what he says next. He says, uh, live in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Okay, our, our posture is one of giving honor to our wives because of their weakness. Now, again, this is something that feels like, again, we've stepped off the ledge into something else controversial because no one likes to be told that they're weak, right? Like we are a society that values strength and we do not value weakness. We hide our weaknesses. We upplay our strengths. We try to, we try to yeah, put our strengths out front and hide our weaknesses. And what, what Peter's doing here is referring to physical weakness, and that's it. He's not referring to like a spiritual posture or uh, anything deeper about this. He's saying God made women, on average, physically weaker than men. Okay, there's always those, ex- those outliers or exceptions to that. But what, what he's pointing to here is uh, if women are weaker, that opens them up to more vulnerabilities than men are. Okay, and, and that, I mean, go back to the Me Too movement. The, the reason that's a movement is because God made m- women weaker than men, and men have abused their strength. Instead of using their strength to serve and protect, have used their strength to abuse and hurt. So Peter's saying, you need to be aware of the fact that weakness is a part of your wife's identity, and and because of that, you love her and serve her and protect her and show her honor. Again, that, that sounds insulting if you're a woman, right? But Peter is not insulting you. He is elevating you. 
He is saying that you are so worthy of dignity that a man's job, a husband's job, is to give his life, making sure that she is safe and feels protected. So, so here's, here's what I mean by that. I have this um, pyramid. Uh, it's called the intimacy pyramid. We have a graph that we can show there. And so intimacy is, is uh, uh, relational intimacy, emotional intimacy, physical intimacy, all the different types of what it means to, to feel close to someone. And this is true for marriages, this is true for friendships, this is true for church relationships. But if we're going to have that kind of intimacy in a marriage, emotionally, spiritually, all those things, then we need to make sure that it's a place where you can be vulnerable. Okay? And the only way, husbands, that your wife is going to be vulnerable with you is if she feels safe with you. And the only way she's going to feel safe with you is if she trusts you. The only way she's going to trust you is if you have been honest with her and she can be honest with you. And so what Peter's doing is he's getting to the middle of that pyramid, saying, hey, if the goal is loving your wife well and having that intimate relationship, that cannot happen unless you have honored her as the weaker vessel. Like protecting your wife's safety and vulnerability, making sure that she can open up to you in a way that she knows that it won't be used against her later, but that you will protect her with your life. That's what it means to honor your wife as the weaker vessel. Honoring means prizing, treasuring, and valuing in a public way. Right? Like, like, man, it's so important that we honor our wives publicly as we speak. Uh, the, the third thing he says here is a husband's reward. He says that we're to do this, live in an understanding way, showing honor since they are heirs with you of the grace of life. And the grace of life is what he's been talking about in chapters one and two. It's our identity as followers of Christ. It's our reward that's coming. And he's saying, hey, dudes, your wife is a co-heir with you. And this is what I said a little bit ago about complementarianism. Our, uh, the Bible teaches that God made men and women equal in dignity and value, period. Okay? Everyone who loves the Bible, everyone who's a complementarian, believes that wholeheartedly. Not every church embodies that in their culture. Okay, it is so important if we are a complementarian church to make sure that the women in our church know that they have just as much right to the throne of God and the inheritance that he is giving to us at the end of time as any man. Okay, again, we all affirm that doctrinally, but many church cultures set up this hierarchy of like, well, if you're a man, you really get all the, the extra perks and privileges than women do. Right? And so make sure that we embody this fact that we are co-heirs, that the rewards our wives will get is the same reward that we will get as husbands. And then he ends with one of the most sobering verses in the New Testament. It's the husband's warning. He says this, um, that they're heirs with you the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. I don't know of any other place in the Bible where God threatens to cut off a relationship because of how we treat someone. No word is it said as clearly as that. Okay, and, and this, if you're a husband, you know this on a soul level, right? How can you go to God in prayer when in the back of your mind you know that you and your wife aren't cool, that, that you've been treating her in a, an unhonoring way, that you have not been honoring her as the, the, as the weaker vessel or, or trying to live with her in an understanding way? This is such an important concept. Wayne Grudem is a, a fantastic theologian, and this is what he says about this. It says, God is so concerned with husbands living with their wives in an understanding and loving way that he interrupts his relationship with them when they are not doing so. No Christian husband should presume to think that any spiritual good will be accomplished by his life without an effective ministry of prayer, and no husband may expect an effective prayer life unless he lives with his wife in an understanding way, bestowing honor on her. How do you know how serious God takes the fact that men should live with their wives in an understanding way, showing them honor? He is willing to interrupt the relationship and not hear your prayers until you have restored the relationship with your wife. And that sounds legalistic, right? Doesn't that sound like, hey, you do this and God likes you, you don't do this and God doesn't like you? It's not legalism. What it is is the gospel. What is the purpose of your marriage? Your marriage exists to model the servant leadership of Jesus, the sacrificial loving kindness of Jesus, and the church's humble response. And if you are not living with your wife in an understanding way, if you're being a, a jerk, if you're not honoring her, you do not model the sacrificial and servant posture of Jesus, who is your Savior. And if you're not modeling that, why would you expect him to listen to your prayers in that sense? So both of these things, uh, this is a lot for men, and this is a lot for women right? Like there's a lot here that we all fail at time and time again. And so, so this, if you take this as your, your marching orders, you're leaving, you're like, this is what I'm going to try to do. Uh, all you have to do is go back and read Genesis 3 and realize that, that we're going to struggle at this and we're going to fail at this in so many ways. 
Okay, that this will never be easy. A marriage that is, is dominated by these kinds of postures will not come apart from the grace of God. And, and here's how we know that. Because of the two words that begin both verse 1 and verse 7. What does he say? He says, likewise, wives. And he goes and explains. And then verse 7, he says, likewise, husbands. What is he referring to? He, he's saying this is in the same way. This is comparative to something. What is he talking about? He's talking about what we just studied last week. He's referring back to verses 21 through 25 of chapter 2. It says, For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep and have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Likewise, wives. Yeah, likewise, husbands. You were straying like sheep but have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And who is that shepherd? It's the son of God himself who loved us enough to endure unjust suffering to endure difficult situations without speaking back, to, to endure a brutal murder and execution so that the sins of us as wives and husbands, all the times we fail to do what God says here, could be placed on his shoulders and he could pay the penalty that we deserve by dying in our place. And, and here's why it's so important to keep coming back to this idea of what is the purpose of marriage is it honors God by proclaiming the gospel. Okay, and, and I, I don't want to end without recognizing the fact that we, we have many singles here in our church, people that don't, haven't yet been covenanted to someone in marriage. And so if that's the case, if you are a man or a woman who is, is, not, in a, is not married currently, we have to say like that God has not forgotten you in those instances. The reason that this matters is because who is Peter writing to? He's not writing to individual wives and individual husbands. He's writing to corporate wives and corporate husbands saying the way that you live among the pagans as a church should model the gospel that you proclaim on a Sunday morning. And so the church's proclamation of the gospel includes all of us. It takes all of us. Whether you're single or whether you're married, you are a man or a woman made in God's image who needs to conduct your relationships with the opposite sex in a way that models the things that we've read about here. And so together, corporately, the culture of our church needs to be one where when people see us interact with each other as brothers and sisters in Christ, they leave saying, boy, there's something different about those people. What, what they believe is very different than what I believe, but there's something about the way they love each other that feels enticing. I wonder what's happening there. And that's where they will glorify God on the day that he visits us. So we only went about 15 minutes over this morning, so it's a little bit long. Um, and what we normally do now is we turn to our tables and we have some discussion time. Uh, but we, I don't think we have time for that this morning. I wanted to, again, go make sure I was trying to be as clear as possible so that we didn't, uh, I didn't accidentally uh, leave with people thinking something other than what God says here in his word. So we do have some discussion questions on the screen, and they should be on your bulletin that you came in with as well. So maybe take a picture of the screen, the questions. Uh, maybe we don't have them on there. I don't know. But the, uh, yeah, so on the bulletin. Um, but just like pray through these questions. Think through what this looks like for you as a husband or a wife or as a man or woman who is, is single and living out what it means to honor God with your relationships. And so uh, what I want to do now is we're going to turn to a time of communion, but uh, let's, let's spend the next 30 seconds, um, turn inward on our tables. Instead of discussing, let's spend some time in prayer together as the body of Christ. Just have one volunteer at your table. Pray for this issue specifically. Pray for the husbands and the wives and the people at your table that, 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 that God's truth would work into our hearts. We'll do that for 30 seconds and then uh, we'll end with a time of communion. Heavenly Father, we are so humbled by your love and your obedience uh, to your Father that uh, we just could not do this side of life without you. Please continue to transform our hearts so that we can see you as better, that we can see you as obedient when we're not, um, that we can see that you love us even when we can't love you. In your name we pray. Amen. Here at Mystery Day, we practice open communion. So if you are a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we invite you to the table to share of the bread and, and uh, the juice, the body and the blood of Christ. Um, if you have not put your faith in Christ yet, um, then we ask you to abstain. Um, this, uh, 
unique Sunday to see my son come up waving the palm branch. And Jesus once said, let the little children come to me. And then he was welcomed into Jerusalem by everyone hailing him as king that would later in the week be calling to crucify him. And that is a perfect example of us. We run through life on highs and lows saying he is our king and we betray him with a kiss. And then we look at the verses like this in 1 Peter and he's telling wives to be gentle and quiet in spirit. He refers to himself as being gentle and lowly in 11, or Matthew 11, 28. And then in Ephesians 5, we see a, a great example of, he, he's, he's telling the husbands, present your wives blameless and holy and pure. And we have to remember that all of us here are the bride of Christ. And we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And he put himself forward as our husband and, and is presenting us holy, blameless, and pure before, Christ, or before God. As we see what's coming in today with Palm Sunday, it's just a buildup of the week that we get to see Jesus's obedience working out perfectly for us. That at the end of this week, he will ask the Father, take this cup from me, but not my will be done, but yours. And that is a really beautiful example of love that he has for us. And just the transforming work that he does in us every single day when we cannot obey him perfectly and we go back to in repentance and he continually opens himself up and says, look at my hands, look at my feet, look at my side. By my wounds, you are healed. And so let's go to the table today just thanking Jesus that he obeyed when we cannot and that he loves us when we do not love him, that we continually go and betray him, uh, yet he continually redeems us with uh, just the, the amazing, amazing work that he did on the cross. Um, so let us turn our eyes towards Jesus and look on his wonderful face things of earth grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I'll pray. Now let's worship. Heavenly Father, we just love you and we thank you for taking the place that we can never fulfill. We thank you for giving us these wise words of how to love our spouses and that when we fall short in these, you are the one that really fulfills them. Let us not find our own identity in our works or in the people around us, but let us see your identity as you loving us and you giving yourself for us, Father. So as we come to the table today, let us just remember that our breaches of the law are yours and your obedience is ours. We love you, thank you, amen. Let's, let's worship.